you have your Bibles, please turn to Job chapter 1. We're going to be starting a new series on the book of Job. Why? People always want to know about why. You'll see in commercials, something will happen, and you'll hear the per person cry out, why? You'll see a murder, and the police will look for a motive, which is why. I find it kind of interesting though, that people are always searching for why, because let's take a homicide. The homicide could have happened because of passion, because there was a midst of a robbery. It was revenge. It was premeditated because of hate. But the bottom line is, the person who was murdered is still dead. The why oftentimes doesn't satisfy, because it's like, oh, your loved one died because the person hated them. Oh, that makes me feel better. You know, so sometimes we're always searching for why, but it does not make us feel better. So why are we studying this? The why is not because you're going to suffer and tragedy will hit because you've suffered and tragedy is hidden and it will hit again. We're not looking at Job for the purposes of saying, well, we're all in this together. We all suffer. Isn't it great? Because let's face it. It's kind of like surgery. When, when you're having surgery, it's a minor surgery. When I'm having surgery, it's a major surgery. When you're having a problem, it's just a problem. When I'm having a problem, it's devastating. It's terrible. I can't even function. We, we all kind of, and so the purpose isn't to say, oh, well, Job suffered and, and that makes me feel better. The why that we're doing the book of Job is to respond properly when difficulty arises, when tragedy hits, that we might respond the way God wants us to because we are his children and he's given us blessings. So that's the why. So I hope you feel better about knowing why we're looking at the book of Job. Also, the other reason is I've never taught this book. So after 20 plus years of being in ministry here, didn't want to repeat, thought this was a good time to, to, to teach this. <clears throat> so introducing the book of Job, there's lots of debate and discussion. Well, who wrote it? Well, it doesn't tell us who wrote it. There are those, there are particularly some Jewish rabbis, who think Moses wrote the book. Others think that it was um, written during the post-exile period of time, which is basically when they were in Babylon and those types of things. And there are others who say, well, it's anonymous. We don't know. And I kind of go to the, it's anonymous. We don't know who the human agent was. But I'll tell you, I know who wrote it, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote it so that we might see what God's doing and what God wants us to do in response to problems, difficulties, and tragedies. 
There are also because of the debate about when it was written. Because I always want to say, well, this kind of appears to be like some other Middle Eastern writings of this time. But they ultimately always say, but the book of Job has done so much better. Well, again, the book of Job has done so much better because the Holy Spirit's the one writing it. And he gets to the truth. There are those who say it's just a story to teach. It's kind of like a, an extended parable. I disagree with that. And so I'm going to start the uh, reading the verse and I'm going to kind of continue on with my introduction of the book of Job. In verse 1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. So first off, the scripture here says it was a man. It wasn't, sorry, it wasn't once upon a time, there was a guy. There's also a reason why I know it wasn't a, a parable, is that Ezekiel in chapter 14, verse 14, refers to Job. James in chapter uh, 5, verse 11, also refers to Job. So both of those make reference to the fact that they were human beings. In Ezekiel, he talks not only of Job, but he talks of, of Noah, and he talks of Daniel. And so he puts two other people there. So again, I believe Job was an actual physical person. I believe he probably lived around the time of Abraham. So this was before the law, all this. And but he was probably a contemporary of Abraham. And it said he lived in the land of Uz, Uz. No one quite is sure where it is. Some think that it's more towards the Fertile Crescent, way east of, of Israel. I tend to think that it's more in what we would call in present, uh, what was referred to as Edom and that area a little east and south of what is now called Israel. Uh, the reason why I'm kind of convinced of that is some of the raiding parties that we see mentioned later in, in this chapter are more located in that area. And so I tend to think it's not as east as some people think. But the exact location isn't as important as the truth that is going to be told. So there is this man named Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Now I want you to notice that the author of this has told us right up front that Job's a good guy. Didn't say he's sinless. Didn't say he wasn't a sinner, but he said that he was blameless, that he was upright, fearing God and turning away from error. So he was attempting to follow God as best as a human can follow God in our sinful nature. This discussion right here and then in a few more uh, verses lets us know something that no one else knows in the story. And I'll kind of tell you what that is in a second. But it goes, he's blameless. He's upright, fearing God and turning from evil. 
it's important for us to understand that as the book goes on. He had seven sons and three daughters were born to him. So he had a large family. Sons particularly in, in this culture because that's kind of your social security system. Your sons would make sure that you were taken care of. And so the fact that you had seven made sure that you had a, a good pension plan. It was your 401k. Uh, so you had seven of them. And you had three daughters in case the seven sons were idiots. The, the three daughters maybe m might marry somebody who was a little more sympathetic. So he has 10 kids. And his possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, which would make it 1,000 oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. Now, this recounting of his possessions to us was, ah, okay. So let me try to let you understand how rich he was and how diversified his portfolio was. Like that word? Trying to get you into the 401k and all. Okay. So here, this is his diversified portfolio. He had 7,000 sheep, which means he had wool and he had meat and he had pasture land in order to take care of 7,000 sheep because they eat grass really close to the ground. So you got to have a lot of land to have 7,000 sheep. And which makes him rich because he's got wool to sell, he's got meat to sell, and he has plenty of meat to provide for his family. So he has that aspect of, of if you will, a pastoral life. And he has 3,000 camels. Now, what good are camels on a farmland? Not much. But they are good if you're going to trade because they travel long distances. So he could put the wool or whatever else he wanted to sell on the camels. Or he could sell the camels to other entrepreneurs who are, who are trading. So he has that as another diversified portfolio. And he has 500 yoke of oxen, which means he farmed. He tilled the soil and he had a large, because again, if you don't, if you have a thousand oxen, a 500 head, you got to have a lot of land to till. So he is rich because he can till that land and produce agriculture in it. But he is, again, he's diversified because he has sheep, he has camels, and he has oxen. And then it says he has 500 female donkeys. Well, why is 500 female donkeys important? Because it only takes one male donkey to produce more donkeys. So the fact that you have 500 means that you can continue increasing your herd. And what are donkeys good for? They're beasts of burden. That they can take the, the wool, that they can do the turnips or whatever else he grows and send it off because he has these beasts of burden. So he has, if you will, a well-rounded portfolio. He's rich, but he's rich in a number of different areas. He's not just invested in Microsoft. He's, he's got it covered. And then he has a great number of servants, which means he's got people to work this land and work the businesses that he has. Which means he's got to be an outstanding manager of not only his assets, but of his people. So Job is, is, is an excellent business person, if you will. And it says... 
That man was the greatest of all the men of the East. He's wealthy. He was a good manager. And he took God seriously. He was upright. He was blameless. And he avoided evil. And he was apparently a good father, verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so the seven sons and the three daughters would each take a turn having a festival in their home and, and rotate, and they would always invite so basically, all 10 of the children would sit around and have this celebration, and they would do this consistently. This time it's in my house, next time it's in your house, and go on. It's not like current day where one person gets stuck with Easter and Thanksgiving and, and whatever. No, everybody's taking a turn, and everybody's participating, and there's this, there's this wanting them to be a part of the family. So apparently, they're not saying, I, I hate my family, let's get out. They're there. And they even divided their sisters. And when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their heart. Thus Job did continually. We see that Job is so proactive in his spiritual matters, he doesn't wait for his kids to sin. Because maybe in their heart that I don't know about because it's in their heart, maybe something happened. And, and so I want to make sure that they're forgiven. So he's offering sacrifices on their behalf and he's doing it for each of the kids. Each of the times they go around this thing because it goes, I don't want my family To have the impact of sin. And thus Job did continually. He, it's not good enough one time. It's every single time. So we're introduced to this man named Job. Spiritual. Moral. Wealthy. That's the setup. That's who he is. Now we go from the earth view to a change of scenery to heaven. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So apparently there's some kind of schedule that, that the sons of God, and some will say these are the angels and whatever, and we can debate what that is. But there's this period of time when the angels, or whoever these sons of God are, come and they present themselves before God. Maybe it's an accountability session. What have you been doing since we last met? And Michael goes, well, I've done X, Y, and Z. And Gabriel goes, I've done A, B, and C. And Homer goes, I was looking at the brook. I'm sorry, I just thought it was beautiful. You know, but they're presenting their accounting, apparently, and, they and they're before God. But then it says, Satan also came now, it doesn't say Satan is a son of God. It just says he also showed up. Apparently, he knew the schedule. 
This is the time when the sons of God show up and give their accountability. So I'm going to show up too. Now, Satan isn't just his name. Satan means adversary, enemy. And Satan is going to be just like his name. Notice in the Old Testament, they would name their children. They would take on the attributes of who they were. Jacob was a deceiver, a conniver. He was named Jacob. Joseph was God shall bless, God shall add. Wonderful name. There are, there are all those types of names, but it was, the name was related to the type of person. So uh, the reason I'm smiling, I'm just thinking, can you imagine the modern-day equivalent if we call our kid dumb idiot? No. Let's just say, you got to think of it. I don't think, no one's here, and, and hopefully nobody that's hearing me, his name is Mortimer. But just, just think if Mortimer meant dumb idiot. Your entire life, you were called Mortimer, which was dumb idiot. Well, Satan is called adversary because that's who he is. He has always been the adversary. He was always the liar. He was always the accuser. All the way back to the garden when he told Eve, ah, God didn't mean what he said. You're kind of taking it over. You know, you don't, you don't have to be so literal. And we're going to see here, he is the adversary. So Satan shows up. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Now, God is allowing Satan to respond. Because God knows exactly what Satan's been doing. Just like when God, after Adam and Eve sin and hide, and he walks into the cool of the day, he calls out, where are you guys at? God knows, but he allows you the opportunity to at least be truthful. And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Now, this is something Satan frequently does. He still does it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says that Satan roams the earth roaring like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan still roams the earth. He's still doing what Satan does. Fortunately, our God still does what our God does, but Satan doesn't change. Satan is exactly who Satan is. So why is it we should ever believe him? Why is it when he lies to us that we would ever accept it? Because he's always been a liar. He's not going to change. He's always seek to accuse us. He's not going to change. He's always been our adversary, our enemy. He's not going to be a change. So why should we believe him? But that's what he's been doing. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now I want you to notice something. It's God who brings up Job. He goes, Okay, you've been roaming around the earth. Have you thought about Job? And God says, 
the same thing that the writer of the book has said. Have you considered Job? He is blameless. There's no one like him on the earth. There's all kinds of people doing all kinds of evil things, and eventually, you know, those things happen. And he goes, but he's exceptional. There's no one like him on earth. A blameless and upright man, fearing God, fearing me, and turning away from evil. Have you thought about it? Now, in my timidity, I say, you know, God, maybe you just shouldn't bring me up. I was doing fine. I had all this sheep and all this cattle and all this auction and all these servants. And, I was, and, and my kids were doing great. And I was doing sacrifices. Why did you have to bring me up? I was fine until then. But it's God who, and I want you to understand because it's so important for us to understand in this book that even God says he's blameless. He's upright. He fears me. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? He is going to go right at Job's integrity. He's not going to say, yeah, I, I agree with you, God. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears you. Because his activity seems to indicate all of these things are true. But that's not what Satan does. He goes, yeah, God, I agree with you. Notice he goes, does Job fear you for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Now, here's a little rabbit I like to chase. If what Satan says is true, that God built a hedge around him, wouldn't this be an excellent prayer to prayer for the people in your family and your loved ones in our church? God, build a hedge around us. God, make that hedge so high that we can't get taken. But he, he says, in essence, because you blessed Job, that's the only reason he's praising you. Which I also find it funny because it seems that once, the, my experience has been, once people become wealthy, they tend to forget God because they, they depend on their wealth. So it seems to me that Job is the opposite of what most of us are. Job is more reliant on God. The richer he gets, most of us get less reliant on God. The richer we get. So he goes, we, he, only, he only praises you because you've made him rich. And you protected him. You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Because he's wealthy, because you've blessed him, that's why he's praised you. Now, we ought to praise God because he's blessed us. We also ought to praise God when he does it. Praising God should not be dependent on whether he blesses us or doesn't bless us. But Satan goes right to him and says, the only reason, the only reason Job praises you is because you blessed him. He accuses him. He is the accuser. 
Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Not only will he curse you, he'll look at you, God, and curse you if you take his stuff away. That's a pretty bold statement. I can understand him saying, you take all of his stuff away, he'll curse you. Because let's face it, we hit our thumb on our, on, with a hammer and we curse God. You know, we, we curse God a lot. He goes, you take his stuff away and he'll curse you to your face. In, in, in my sense, he's kind of overextended his argument. Yeah, he'll curse you. Not too sure anybody's going to curse God to his face. Because he's holy. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not pour forth your hand on him. God says, I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to let you do it. I'm going to let you take his possessions and his blessings away. But you can't touch him. God is still sovereign. And notice even our adversary, our accuser, the liar, can only go as far as God lets him go. Because he's sovereign. And in essence, God is saying to Job, I'm sorry, saying to Satan, you're wrong. Job won't. And I'm going to let you see it. I'm going to let Job see it. And I'm going to let all of heaven see that Job is blameless and upright and fears me, not because of what he has, but because of who I am. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. I want you to think about it as I said. What would the conversation be like if God and Satan had a conversation about you and about me? I kind of hate to hear about that conversation. Satan got, you know, yeah. Joe might be faithful. He's been faithful several times. I'll wait till next Saturday and he probably won't. Notice the confidence that God has about Job. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And for those of you who can underline in your Bible, I'd suggest you do this. If you don't, maybe write a sticky note or something, because this is kind of an important verse to help you with. I'm going to start with verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, unless he does not fall. Start off saying, don't think you're more strong than you think you are. Take heed. No temptation, not some, not most, not the hard one. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is as common to man. 
We all like to think that we're unique and special. Now, I may not know how you feel about something, but we've all gone through something. We've all had financial difficulties. Maybe your financial difficulty meant you couldn't buy bread, and my financial difficulty is I couldn't buy a Mont Blanc bin, but we've all faced things that we, we couldn't get because we didn't have enough money. And we've all faced illnesses because that's the fact of human beings. And if we haven't faced an illness yet, just wait a little while, you will. And even if you don't face an illness, you'll hit your thumb with a hammer and that'll hurt a lot. We have aches and pains and the older we get, the worse it gets. And we've all had people that we've loved who've gotten really sick and have died. It's common. As I said, once I read a will that said, if I die, which I always find humorous because only two people in the history of humankind never died. And the answer to that is they're still not here. Enoch walked with God and wasn't. And Elijah got on a chariot of fire and took off. They ain't here now. We all die. It's common to man. And God, not but God, and God. When those temptations come, when those difficulties come, when the problems face you, God is faithful. God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. But with temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. You see, God had great faith in Job because he had demonstrated his consistency of being a blameless and upright person who feared God. That was who he was. Is that who we are? And if not, that should be who we are. And God is saying, when temptation comes, when that attack of Satan comes, when these difficulties come, God says, I'm not going to let it go more than you can bear. So why is it sometimes some people have greater difficulties than others? Because maybe God has more confidence in them than in you. Because maybe he thinks you have a little bit of difficulty, you'll turn tail and run. But that person can face great difficulty and still praise him. And he will also allow some way of you to get out of that problem. This is an important statement of God. So that when those problems come, when those temptations come, you can say, God, your word says, I'm needing a little help here because I'm not that strong. Get me a way of escape or build that hedge around me or get me that strength in my ankles and knees and hips where I can stand firm in faith because I trust you. But our response should not be, I praise you because you bless me. I praise you because you're God and you're worthy of it. You're God, you're my father, you're worthy of it. 
You're my Savior. You're worthy of it. You're my Lord. You're worthy of it. Everything that I have and everything I hope to have is because you bless me and you're worthy of being praised. And if you take it all away, you're still worthy to be praised. And our response to what God allows is what we need to consider. Now, those who will say what this book talks about and whatever is what's called the theology of retribution. You do something wrong, God gets you. There's a, a pastor back in the 1600s, Jonathan Edwards, and he had a, a hellfire damnation from England. God just is like, you're a spider on it, and he just got a flame, and he can't wait to drop you. That's not the God of the Old or New Testament. Let alone the God of the Old Testament. God is not there to be even with you. God is there to redeem you. To save you. So, how do we take this and apply it every day? We get up in the morning and we say, Lord, help me to get through this day and praise you. And then the next day, we get up and say, Lord, help me get through this day to praise you because let's face it if you make a commitment today to live for him forever you'll be faithful several times if you make the commitment morning by morning by morning by morning to say i trust you god i may not know what's going on i didn't know what happened i didn't know the conversation in heaven wasn't a part of that conversation. You had a conversation in heaven about me, and I don't know what it was, but it's okay because I trust you. And it's okay because your word is sure, and I trust your word because it has never been wrong. So when I see words like this, I'll trust it because my future is secure in you. My 401k may go up, it may be go down, but I'm going to praise you regardless. Our response should not be the hedge or the lack of the hedge. Our response should be, as, a, as Job will say in our next reading of the word, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all God's people said.